Hello and welcome to The Wash, a special edition podcast we call The Impeachment Inquiry of Donald J. Trump. I'm Leona Dunn. And I'm Molly Fazer, coming to you from the School of Communication Graduate Journalism Program at American University in Washington, D.C. An historic week in the nation's capital as the House of Representatives begins an impeachment inquiry of the president. This comes after reports that Mr. Trump had pressured the Ukrainian government to dig up dirt on Hunter Biden, the son of presidential candidate Joe Biden. Our guest today will shed some light on impeachment, whistleblowers, media ethics, and some political history and analysis. American University history professor Alan Lickman predicted Mr. Trump's election early on. We'll talk with him and with AU law professor Luis Caldera about whistleblower laws, with AU journalism professor John Watson about media ethics, and NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving, who will do some news analysis. He also teaches public affairs at AU. We begin by talking with the only person to correctly identify the outcome of all presidential elections since 1984. That person is American University professor Alan Lickman. He says going through the impeachment process makes moral sense, no matter what the outcome. I'm waiting for the impeachment itself, which I'm absolutely certain is going to happen. Nancy Pelosi would not go on national TV and announce an impeachment inquiry that just was going to fizzle out. And there's so much already, just days into the inquiry. There's already enough for articles of impeachment. In his book, Keys to the White House, Lickman reveals 13 keys that help him predict who will be elected. According to Lickman, three of the keys have already been nailed down against the Republican Party, with it only taking six for a defeat. The party mandate key based on the losses in the midterm elections. The foreign policy success key. No big foreign policy breakthroughs like Trump has promised in Iran or uh, North Korea. And the incumbent charisma key because Donald Trump appeals to a narrow slice of the electorate. That's why the impeachment is so important because that would nail down a fourth key, putting them just two keys short of defeat. Lickman admits that because it is still so early in the impeachment process, no one knows what might happen as more information could be revealed with time. When they began the investigation of Richard Nixon, they were focused on the Watergate break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. But as the inquiry proceeded and covered much worse crimes than that, including illegal wiretaps, illegal break-ins, illegal campaign contributions, illegal attempts to rig elections. So the Watergate scandal blossomed into what to that point in our history was the worst scandal in American history. We don't know where the evidence may lead us this time. We know that the White House not only put the conversation between President Trump and the Ukrainian President Zelensky in the super secret server, they also put conversations with the Saudi royal family and Vladimir Putin. There may be much worse stuff if Congress can get our hands on those conversations. As for his final prediction. Truth is, so much is in flux that even I can't make a prediction yet. Speculation about impeachment started almost the day Mr. Trump took office, but it wasn't until late September that the public found out about a whistleblower complaint. It concerned Mr. Trump's phone call to the president of Ukraine, asking him to investigate former Vice President Biden and his son Hunter. The younger Biden had joined the board of a natural gas company in Ukraine. The whistleblower wrote he was concerned the president had used the power of his office to pressure a foreign country to investigate one of the president's main domestic political rivals. Under the Intelligence Community's Whistleblower Protection Act, the complaint must come from an employee of an element of the intelligence community or a contractor to the intelligence community. Our Cami Gregorian has more on this aspect of the story. 
American University law professor Luis Caldera says the importance of a whistleblower is another form of government oversight. People who are in agencies themselves have a duty under statutes to report whether there's waste, fraud, and abuse. President Trump says he wants to meet and identify his accuser, but the identity of a whistleblower is supposed to remain secret. That's why laws are set in place to protect them. Professor Caldera says whistleblowers do take on risks. And so the law is very specific about uh, trying to both protect the individual's identity and trying to protect adverse consequences uh, happening to them. Now, the reality is that many whistleblowers in the end leave their agencies because their identities do become known because they become, in a sense, you know, they've done something patriotic, but they're treated like a pariah uh, within uh, their agencies. Although it is possible the whistleblower's identity could eventually be leaked, at this time their identity remains anonymous. Attention is now focused on how Congress best protects anonymous witnesses. The stakes are high because of the fear of retaliation. Cami Gregorian, Washington. You are listening to The Wash, a special edition we call the impeachment inquiry of Donald J. Trump. The topic of impeachment is making headlines in Washington. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi decided to move forward with an impeachment inquiry on President Trump. Our Mariah Espinoza has more on the story. The last time an American president was impeached from office, Bill Clinton was found guilty of perjury and obstruction in wake of an affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. The two situations are completely different. I talked with NPR senior editor Ron Elving, who says it's the media coverage that has changed drastically. In this particular instance, you had several newspapers suddenly reporting the presence of this whistleblower complaint, which had already been working its way through official channels for several weeks. So there is some journalism going on right now. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to in any sense imply that there isn't a great deal of journalistic activity going on right now. But the essential opening of the case, if you will, uh, was done through official channels by this whistleblower. The roles of the two bodies of Congress are very different. It's the House that gathers enough votes to impeach and the Senate that takes it to trial. Here's the big difference between House and Senate. The House charges with just a simple majority vote. In the Senate, to convict, you need two-thirds, 67 votes. That's an awful lot. It means it must be bipartisan. However, if the Senate moves forward with the trial and convicts Mr. Trump, the impeachment cannot be appealed. At that point, that's the end. If the House passes these articles of impeachment, and at this point we don't know if that's going to happen, but if, let's say, it were to happen here, as it did in 1998 with Bill Clinton, if that happens, then the Senate is expected to hold a trial. There's been some speculation about how they might refuse. I don't think there's any chance that mm -hmm. they would refuse. This is only the fourth time an impeachment inquiry has taken place. It could be weeks or even months before a decision is made. Mariah Espinoza, Washington. There's also, of course, heated media competition for the latest news in the impeachment inquiry. It was the New York Times that broke some details about the identity of the whistleblower, saying the person was a CIA officer who was once detailed to the White House. To critics, these details could help identify the anonymous whistleblower. Our Courtney Jacobs talked with media ethics expert Professor John Watson at American University about the editorial decision made by the Times. The executive editor of the New York Times was never trained in journalism school. He didn't go to journalism school, so he probably never had a formal course in ethical decision making. And secondly, if he had been trained in journalism ethics, he would know that the stakeholders um, were more than the whistleblower him or herself, but also journalism as a whole. When you're making an ethical decision, you have to think 
uh, about, among other things, the stakeholders, the people who will be affected, usually negatively, by the decision you make. And I don't think he thought about the repercussions for journalism as a whole. There's indications that he thought about the repercussions for the whistleblower, but even that thinking was incorrect. The New York Times say they published the information to allow the public an opportunity to make up their own minds about the credibility of the whistleblower. However, others fear that it will have a chilling effect on other potential whistleblowers if this person is identified. That will do it for this edition. Thanks for joining us. I'm Molly Fazer. And I'm Leona Dunn. We come to order. Good morning, everyone. This is the first in a series of public hearings. And with that, a new chapter in American politics begins with public hearings. The House Intelligence Committee heard from its first witnesses with nothing less than the presidency at stake. In day one, State Department officials William Taylor and George Kent testified for more than five hours about concerns that President Trump pressured Ukraine leaders to investigate rival Democrats and withheld military aid to the country. Democrats are investigating whether those requests were linked as they move towards an impeachment vote. President Trump again called it a witch hunt and said he didn't watch. However, lots of the public was interested. On Capitol Hill, thousands of people waited in long lines to try and get inside the hearings. Our Mariah Espinoza and Cami Gregorian were on the scene on a bitterly cold morning as the public took turns to witness history in the making. Even though temperatures are in the 30s, it didn't stop the public from waiting in line to get a first look at the impeachment inquiry. People traveled from all over the country to get an inside glimpse of the hearing. The line to get in stretched all the way down Longworth Building's hallway. Traveling from California, one woman named Ann Cofelt lined up at 6 a.m. to witness the historical moment. Felt that this was uh, an opportunity to see the cast of characters that I follow religiously uh, on television. I wanted an opportunity to see for myself what it was like and to be a part of the public since it's a public hearing. I wanted to be a part of that. It's history. It's, it's really history. Another person from California who didn't want to disclose his name says he's a political junkie and couldn't miss the moment. Oh, this is a momentous day. I mean, you'll never see this again in your lifetime. I mean, uh, yeah, he might actually be removed from office. No, no president has ever actually been removed in the impeachment process. This could be a first. So we'll see, we'll see what the Congress does, whether the senators have a trial or it just turns into a circus or what people do. While some people came from the other side of the country, others used the occasion for educational purposes. Goucher College professor Dr. Nina Therese brought her class from Baltimore, not knowing the date she chose would fall on such an important hearing. Usually once a semester, I bring them down for congressional hearings. So back in summer when I selected November 13th, it was just the House was going to be back. They weren't in district. They were going to be here. And so we selected it and it turned out to be the first day of the impeachment hearings. And so collectively they decided, even though there's probably no chance we're going to get in, we're at least going to try because this is historical. While the crowds were large, they were well behaved, but security still had to calm down some demonstrators. I'm Mariah Espinoza, and our Camu Gregorian has more on what that was like. Thank you, Mariah. Some people used the hearing as an opportunity to demonstrate against the Trump administration. Reading the Constitution out loud, one woman was asked to lower her voice by Capitol Hill police. 
voice well, not to fine. disturb their conversation. But if you, I will not. I'm not here to disturb. I do not want to be disturbed. That will be considered I understand. Alessandra Mandolfi sporting a sweatshirt that read Arrest Trump voiced why today was important to her. Um, it's a historic day. It's the first day of the public hearings for the impeachment of uh, President Trump. And as a citizen of the United States, I feel the need to um, use my First Amendment right to voice my opinion, uh, to let as many people um, as I can know that we support the impeachment process. Demonstrators were not only found inside, but also in front of Longworth's building entrance. Colorado native Stephen Parletto was holding a large sign that read, Your vote is the only antidote. The sign was an outline of President Trump's head made up of snakes. Parletto stood outside in the cold, voicing his opinion. Well, I'm terribly concerned about uh, this what I perceive to be a truly criminal presidency and its influence not only here at home but uh, abroad as well. And I want to uh, just do my, uh, my small part to encourage people to vote, to use their vote this time around. It's just so important. Today's first impeachment hearing definitely drew in quite the crowd. Cami Gregorian, Washington. In today's world, citizens are able to hear about major news of the day via television, radio, the web, and something new since the last impeachment hearing. Podcasts. In fact, the on-demand medium is now a very popular form of news consumption. Our Elise Dean is here to guide us on what is out there and who is doing impeachment podcasts. So Elise, podcasts are quite popular. Yeah, Molly. So there are 750,000 podcasts as of this year, and they cover a wide variety of topics from politics to true crime. And there are at least nine podcasts dedicated specifically to covering the impeachment today. Wow, that is a lot. So which do you suggest for just getting started on the impeachment? Well, if you're looking for just the basic information, I suggest the podcast called Article 2, Inside Impeachment. It's by NBC News, and it breaks down the complicated information of the impeachment and tells it in an interesting way. Episodes are released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so expect some great episodes after today's hearing and Friday's hearing. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. I'm pretty well versed on the impeachment so far, so what about a podcast that helps me think about the deeper implications of the impeachment? Sure. So The Daily by The New York Times is the number one podcast in America, and they really make you think about the bigger picture. The Daily covers a lot of different topics, but does dedicate some episodes just to the impeachment. Their latest episode was about the impeachment and had a very special guest named Leo. Do you know where that phrase comes from, whistleblower? Oh, um, because... For example, um, in sports, if he, if someone does something wrong, like breaking the rules of the game, they would blow a whistle or something like that, and right. they would say, you can't do that, that's wrong. You, right. Yeah. Today, the Times announced a new spinoff series dedicated just to the impeachment, so you might hear more from Leo in that series. It's called The Latest, and their first episode drops tonight. Well, I'm definitely going to have to give that a listen tonight. And are there any podcasts out there that differ from Article 2 or The Daily? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. So Steve Bannon, the former White House chief strategist for President Trump, launched his own podcast called War Room Impeachment. The podcast has a slight bias against the impeachment, as co-host Jason Miller explains. 
I mean, the bottom line here is that Speaker Pelosi and the House Democrats have caved. The, the pressure is getting to them. They have decided that they have to go and take this. But, I mean, the fundamental question everybody should be asking right now, especially our friends in the mainstream media, if they're just now taking this vote to start impeachment proceedings, what the hell have they been doing for the past month? Bannon's podcast is released every day, and all podcasts mentioned in this episode are available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is the first public impeachment hearing in 20 years, and for nearly a quarter century, the voice of NPR News was Bob Edwards, on All Things Considered and Morning Edition. The respected interviewer got a first-hand look at history, starting from his graduate school education at American University here in Washington, D.C., We'll talk with him and other journalists who covered the impeachment scandals of Presidents Nixon, Clinton, and Trump. They all happen to be graduates from the School of Communication. In 1974, the 37th president resigned from office. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. And with those words, the disgraced president leaves office just before the House of Representatives begin a formal impeachment. Our Mariah Espinoza talked with former NPR host Bob Edwards about impeachment scandals of the past, beginning with the resignation of Richard Milhouse Nixon. The impeachment involved a break-in to a Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate Hotel and the subsequent cover-up. Bob talks about the beginnings of Watergate. Over the course of Watergate, I was in three different places. I was at WTOP when it was considered just a local break-in at the Watergate office building. Uh, And I was doing local news, obviously. But I was at the mutual broadcasting system at the time of the Saturday Night Massacre when Nixon fired the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, and the attorney general and his deputy resigned that night. And then by the time of the Nixon resignation... I was at NPR and did the one-minute talk-up that they allow you uh, before a presidential speech. And I remember the the tension because we didn't, you know, we kind of suspected he was going to resign, but maybe not. So we had to be very careful about what we said going into that speech. But it was an amazing, amazing night and a culmination of events that had lasted uh, over the course of a couple of years. So what was the media's reaction to the resignation, since you said that many weren't even expecting that to happen? Well, it was shocking. I mean, not that the fact that this thing had finally ended the way it had, but, but just the idea of an impeachment, uh, since it had only happened once before, and it had been you know, about a century earlier, so long ago, um, and the, the fact that this was happening in the modern era was rather shocking. But um, his guilt or innocence had been discussed so often and um, uh, by so many over the course of two years that I think it was kind of a relief to everyone to finally have it uh, wind up and uh, have the country return to normal business. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was incredible then, though, was the you know you didn't have this extreme polarization of the country that you have today. Right. You had some Republicans who thought uh, that Nixon was guilty and and were troubled 
by his behavior in the White House. Uh, the Republican leaders in the Congress, joined by Barry Goldwater, the most conservative member of Congress, went to Nixon at the White House and urged him um, to consider what was what the damage that was being done to the country and uh, told him that he would probably be impeached if he did not resign. And so he did. So President Nixon had a combative relationship with the press. Do you see any similarities with President Trump on press relations? Uh, by degrees, it's much more extreme. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, most presidents don't like the press. Uh, Nixon, it was very clear he didn't like the press. But with Trump, it, you know, Nixon never called the press the enemy of the people. But yeah, there are there are some similarities, of course. Um, uh, in both cases, it's uh, the charges, uh, and there are no official charges yet in, in the Trump's case. But they will involve abuse of power and obstruction of justice, and that's what Nixon was charged with, you know, as opposed to the uh, the Clinton case, which is completely different from either one. Mm-hmm. With him, it was lying about sex. So is there something different in how press relations at the White House was handled in Nixon's day versus how it's handled now? An extraordinary difference. Um, Richard Nixon's press secretary was Ron Ziegler. And when it was all over, Ron Ziegler apologized uh, to the Washington Post Mm -hmm. and specifically to um, Carl Bernstein and, and Bob Woodward. Uh, and he, he apologized for his overzealousness. He had called it a third-rate burglary. He had said their reporting was, um, you know, too intense and unfair. And he learned otherwise and and apologized. I mean, you can imagine anyone in the Trump White House apologizing to the press for statements they had made. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, they lied. It's very clear they lie. Um, And this would have been such an outrage before Trump that a press secretary would lie on behalf of the president. Mm -hmm. In this case, the president is clearly lying, something I never had to say in 50 years of journalism. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States is lying. Thank God I'm out of the game now. (laughs) But... um, that is nothing unusual anymore. The president lies, so the press secretary lies for the president uh, to be consistent. Another School of Communication alum who covered impeachment was television and radio reporter Jackie Judd. Judd worked for 16 years as a correspondent for ABC's World News Tonight with Peter Jennings for Nightline and for Good Morning America. The Emmy Award-winning journalist covered the impeachment of President William Jefferson Clinton and talked with our Alyssa Royster about the differences in impeachment, politics, and media from the past and today. There are some very significant differences between the Clinton impeachment and the Trump impeachment. I mean, just at the beginning, at the starting point, uh, of course, there was an independent counsel, Ken Starr. He was outside of Congress, and He actually built a case and delivered it to Congress. 
Whereas in this case, it has been the Senate or the House Intelligence Committee that has built the case from the inside. Also, another difference is the nature of what's being investigated. With President Clinton, it had to do with personal behavior and whether he disgraced the office of the presidency. The charges, as you know, were obstruction and perjury related to personal behavior related to whether he uh, lied under oath. The Trump impeachment is playing out on a much larger stage, international relationships, et cetera, national security issues. So that's, that is a very big difference. Another one I would cite is it was kind of a badge of honor for the Clinton White House to say, during the impeachment proceedings, this is not affecting the business of the people. This is not affecting the business of government. We are compartmentalizing it. We're blocking it off. We are moving ahead with our agenda. And President Clinton pretty much stuck to that mantra. President Trump, of course, is playing a very, very different game here. He is obviously deeply involved. He is tweeting out in real time as the hearings are going on. So there is no compartmentalization in the Trump White House. Finally, I would say the other significant difference is there is social media today, and there really effectively wasn't 20, 21 years ago. And so information is being churned out more quickly greater volume. It's kind of flooding the zone, I would say. And what we don't know is how is that affecting the American public's view of the proceedings and of the president. Uh, That didn't occur in 98, 99. What the public basically had then is what happened in the hearings. But there is a lot more for Americans now to digest. What's so much more difficult now is the demands on a journalist. When I was reporting this story, there was actually time to report because my responsibilities were to file for the evening news. There was certainly no Twitter. Uh, There wasn't this constant fire hydrant of information being spewed out and provided by journalists. So in that way, I think it was easier to cover the story. There were just fewer demands because there were fewer outlets. And it was, as I say, there was more time to, in a deliberative way, to report the story. While impeachment hearings have occurred twice in a quarter century, it's a new experience for many of the younger journalists now covering the Trump impeachment inquiry. Steve Dorsey works for CBS Radio here in Washington, D.C., and he's been covering all the twists and turns. Steve is also an SOC alum. And I know this is your first professional experience and reporting on an impeachment. So can you describe what that was like today? Yeah, well, I've been reporting on impeachment since this whole process began back in August. But the last two weeks especially have been very busy with the public impeachment hearings. And it's been an exhausting whirlwind, I think, not just for me as a reporter, in Washington covering the impeachment hearing, but all the technical support staff, producers, special events folks who are running the show in New York, 
and it's tough to keep up with the flow of information, uh, the amount of testimony crammed into a short time, and then this is all butted up against Thanksgiving recess, uh, then Christmas recess, and then you have on top of all this the presidential campaign for 2020. So there's so much going on, and to be able to digest it is hard. And also in my reports, trying to synthesize so much information and names of figures that people have never heard of before and get them to understand it and care about it if they don't live inside the Washington bubble. If they're out in Kansas City, I have to make it easy for them to understand because they've got other things going on in their life. And this is just an update about what's going on in Washington right now. Okay, so did others who might have covered previous impeachments, did they give you any advice regarding today? Well, no one's really given me a lot of advice, but they have shared with me how different this impeachment process is compared to the Clinton impeachment process. I was just a kid. I was in elementary school back then. I have some memories of it, but not a whole lot. And they talk about how challenging this one is because there's so much nuance in it. And back when we had the public hearings in the Clinton impeachment inquiry, there were salacious sexual details. This is more about process. This is more about uh, constitutional powers allegedly being abused. And that's a lot less compelling on TV and on the radio, especially when we talk about all day impeachment hearings and highlights of them uh, and how challenging it is to help get a, help Americans appreciate the process. And Steve Dorsey's boss, CBS News president Susan Zarinsky, is also an SOC alum. She covered the Watergate hearings in her college years, giving a big start to a big media career. This has been a special podcast edition of The Wash, the impeachment inquiry of Donald J. Trump, produced by the American University Graduate Journalism Program.